Welcome, everybody. Welcome, you Johnny Meat Sacks, attempting to break out of the Black Iron Prison per the intro video if you are watching on video. My name is Miguel Connor, your pompous of Gnosis. And so glad to see everybody, as I see already people lining in, lining in into the chat room. We've got, uh, especially those of you who can escape the stranded plains in New York or the Canadian smoke that has now come to the Midwest. Yes, we've had two days of horrible haze. I've not seen the sunlight and the moon looks like a, like a scrambled omelet. So strange times. But if you are here and regardless, if you are celebrating the 4th of July Independence Day holiday weekend or whatever, please welcome everybody. I'm very excited. I uh, recently returning from the Astronosis 2 conference. Huge success. Uh, amazing things happen, and I will share as the time goes by. But with us, very excited to have back an individual who I do agree politically and spiritually. We had a great talk last August on conspiracy theories. David Icke, Philip K. Dick, and all that. Um, I'm sure our guest agrees with Jimmy Dore when he says conspiracy theories should be just uh, renamed into spoiler alerts because it's just all of this is coming true. But that is Richard Cox. Richard, thanks. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Wonderful. And we will be discussing your two books, which I've read. They're short but powerful books, uh, Mandating Mandates and the Essence of Anarchy. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm just fine this morning. Also want to extend a welcome to all the Johnny Vegetable Sacks and all the Johnny Mineral Sacks out there. So get them all covered. Yeah, I can't include the vegans. They'll get, they'll get offended. <laughs> so yes, all you Johnnies, no matter what. But you're still trapped in the hologram, so whatever. And Johnny Quark Sacks, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, not much housekeeping, as always. If you have any questions, please super chat them so we can get to them. You can do it as low as a dollar or less that way we can keep it organized as the audience has grown in the chats uh if you as always if you please subscribe and like if you are here it does help promote the show yeah and support the show in any way you can uh great shows in july so uh get ready on all different topics including the tarot connecting quantum physics and gnosticism uh, a few finding Hermes on mental development and health and a whole bunch and so much more. You will be you're, you're going to be very impressed as always as summer heats up. Other than that, I think that's all I got. So, Richard, uh, tell us a little bit. Um, well, actually, I wanted to ask you questions. We did an interview in August. I think I looked August 22nd. I swear time is completely warped because it seemed like forever and. I remember I, yesterday I talked to a friend and I, talk, I hadn't talked to her in a month and I, I, it felt like I hadn't, it had been six months since I talked to her. Do you feel time is a little twisted, Richard? <laughs> I think that means you're making very good and productive use of your life, Miguel. <laughs> that There's is so true. Much back in there, that, you know, most people sat around watching TV, they feel time is flying by. I th hopefully you're right. Yes, I've been very busy. I've had this like attitude this year of no excuses because I've spent my life making excuses about projects and 
uh, spiritual exercises and I have this attitude of just uh, tackling things as they come. And hopefully that means, you know, any project, it's more important than the project itself is the change within you, that you change as an individual. So very insightful, Richard, very insightful. What about you, Vance? Do you feel time is dilating, warped or... Definitely. You know, it ha it happens when there's too much of a routine, same crap in the news, same crap in your life. You know, it just goes, all time compresses according to the events, right? I think that's one of the contributors of it. All right. Well, you guys let me know what's going on with damn time, uh, Saturn. So, Richard, I wanted to start uh, with anarchism, although I'm going to quote the first quote will be actually from your second book. Uh uh, I don't even want to say the word, but yeah, we'll go from there. But uh, here you go. Uh, one is from the great Adam Curtis, and he's not, it's not his last one, can't get you out of my head, which blew me away. But I'm going to quote Adam, I think he's talking about 9-11, or the aftermath of our wonderful 9-11 event. But he says, in the past, politicians promised to create a better world. They had different ways of achieving this, but their power and authority came from the optimistic visions they offered their people. Those dreams failed, and today people have lost faith in ideologies. Increasingly, politicians are seen simply as managers of public life, but now they have discovered a new role that restores their power and authority. Instead of delivering dreams, politicians now promise to protect us from nightmares. And the second quote, and I know a lot of people always, I think, uh, attribute uh, anarchism to Heath Ledger in uh, The Dark Knight, uh, in a way mistakenly, partly. But he does say, introduce a little anarchy, upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I am an agent of chaos. So you want to speak to these two quotes or shall we get right into anarchism? You tell, you tell us. No, I can speak to them because they're the opening quotes from both books, right? And the books kind of bookend each other or they, they spiral round and meet because I'd finished the essence of anarchy. I put it initially as a series of articles and I finished that just in the first quarter of 2020. Now, something else happened in the first quarter of 2020. I think we know what it was. So I, I wonder what I'd, it was. Yeah, I'd written the anarchism book on it. I'd given examples of, okay, this is how the, this, this is how it might apply in healthcare, in education, in social welfare. And then this thing happened. And all of that seemed a bit irrelevant all of a sudden because all anyone wanted to ask us, yeah, but what if there was like a deadly outbreak, right? Well, how do you do that? I mean, that's all nice. We can sort that stuff out, but forget about that. We need to know about the deadly outbreaks. And I was tearing my hair out of this right because oh come on guy I, I you know i didn't know to put that in and secondly just just read the principle and you can figure it out right if you get the principle it applies to anything so i didn't want to answer that question so no just do your own work but then three years later writing i think i can say this word measuring the mandates is the name of the book um it's a a chance to actually answer that question and to to look at okay this is where the adam curtis quote comes in so Adam Curtis actually doesn't say what he's talking about there. So he could be talking about anything, right? But he's talking about how the state makes this promise to protect us from dangers. Okay, we might not be able to deliver this dream life that we we said we would in terms of economic growth, but without us, you would die of X, Y, Z things. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, is that true, right? And what I'm, what I'm using the quote for is to show that that is a reoccurring pattern. So 20 years ago, it was terrorism. Now it's this past three years being this new thing, right? But there's this continuous promise. Now, 
two years from now when the aliens invade, that'll be the thing <laughs> the state is going to protect us from. Okay. So yeah, this, this getting beneath that, so this, this claim that repeats and repeats and repeats, and we kind of fall for it every time. And then the, there's a shift, right? Cause like 60, 70, 80, 90% of people initially fall for it. And then there's a retraction of, oh, actually, I'm not quite sure they're doing such a good job. And some level of normality returns, but not quite the normal there was before. So that's that's where uh, I was going with that. No, that's really well said. I always tell people, just read some history. The old Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I mean, nothing new under the sun, this bag of tricks, safety over liberty, whatever. It's been happening forever. I mean... Even something like, well, why do we go to war? You can go back to the Roman times. The Romans had this trick. Well, we're not threatened, but they might invade us. So we're going to invade them first. I mean, nothing is original. These these things are just happen. And if you see the perspective in history, as you've shown, 9-11 to this, to Ukraine, to the, the, the UFOs or whatever, they're going to use a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere in Asia or something like that or to get us, yeah, to get us uh, more docile and to make sure that uh, we fall asleep, as they always say. Um, well, yeah, well word. So, well, tell us about when anarchy start, because uh, even at the Astronosis Conference, it was like we were at this party and there was all this group of scholars and researchers, you know, big guys on the internet. And we were, there were, we're talking about politics and I said something like, you know, I think, I think we need to just, um, we need to shelve democracy. Good. It had a good run. It's time to just kill it and try something new. And the look of terror on their faces. And I was like, look, you're into the occult. You're supposed to be, you know, open and, you know, going to the edges of reality and see what's happening. And, it, it it went down like a lead balloon and I, I got into some friendly arguments. So do you get that too, Richard? People you know, think a, anarchy is the box. joker. <laughs> it's a hard box to think your way out of. I can relate to this because I remember the first time I read the claim that democracy had become like the new Christianity for us, right? It replaced our religions. And it was, I read that in connection to the invasion of Iraq, because now we're going, we went there a thousand years ago to export Christianity. And now we're going back to export democracy. And I must have been about 20 years old when I, when I heard that claim. And I thought, no, hang on, that doesn't, I can't get my head around that. Democracy is not a religion. It's like a really functional, it, it is the ultimate functional political system, right? So I, I, I can't relate to that. And it took me a long time to climb out of that all-confining box and see mm -hmm. democracy as this particular ideology that has taken on all these religious overtones and has replaced our religions in many ways and voting and all these kind of rituals we go through to, to get the, the great gods to shine upon us now. Uh, that was a difficult thing to see. So I can certainly relate to it. And I think at the end of the anarchism book, I don't think I know because I wrote it. So <laughs> this is the case. I quote <laughs> that lady, Megan Phelps Roper, who uh, left the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. Okay, the the really kind of um, the church that would go around abusing people at funerals, essentially. Um, and I quote her kind of process of how she came to see her beliefs were unfalsifiable. Because I came to look on the book and anarchism in general as an act of cult deprogramming. Okay, it's about challenging and shattering that mindset and that's why there's like 100 odd question marks in the book because i continuously want people like your friends who might you know consider the world could be a dream and something an imagination in the mind of a god uh, but can't question democracy to have questions put to them well what about this and, and how does that work of that and if you think this how can you think that and challenge until the the 
cult programming falls away. Yeah, well said. I mean, I always thought democracy or the republic was the best. I mean, I like my life. Uh, it's comfortable. Uh, I can complain, but uh, life is good. But at the same time, living a lie and realizing that you are suppressed, that you are oppressed, that you live really in a sort of a prison, a political prison, you have to be, I have to be honest with myself. And it's not like people, I'm sure you're not advocating, Richard, well, we're going to have an anarchist society tomorrow and that's it. I mean, this thing's can be implemented and they have been implemented uh, in history. I mean, the example is when you have uh, countries coming together to do trade, it's completely anarchist. There's no body above them. These countries, Japan, China, Indonesia, they just get together and they sort of create. So there are examples. The other one is uh, uh, Tolkien was very interested in anarchism and the Shire, which many of us think that would be the kind of the paradise world is kind of anarchist. So uh, what do you think of this? I mean, it's not yeah, something I don't, that we have to. I'm not motivated by a hatred of the world the way it is. There are things that I find morally repugnant, particularly to do with the foreign policy of the countries we live in. Okay, but beyond that, as, as regards the life I meet as I walk around my day-to-day -day life, you know, I'm sat here having this conversation with you now on the far side of the world and people are listening in. This is not a bad life. Okay, I'm quite comfortable. I'm warm and dry. Um, what I think is that there are certain principles and reasons that allow this flourishing of life to what we have. And then there's a political system, uh, an archon, if you will, that masquerades and wants to take the credit for that. And they go, hey, look at me, all these great things I gave you. And you can see that, I mean, with any election cycle, but it's going to start in the US in a few months, right? Where you're just going to have war to war coverage of uh, Biden versus who. It's never as ended. This is important, right? As if this is the thing. And it's so important because if you make the wrong voting choice, that will be all these great things you've got gone. And I think it's a, a an archon masquerading, right? Pretending that I, he gave you all these great things when, when he didn't. So what I'm interested in really is to identify what was that, right? When I would root it in things like the, the worth of the individual, that we, we're not just horns on a board to be discarded in this way or that way um, and rooting it in in these kind of ideas uh, then you can that's what gives rise to the flourishing of of our society the way it has yeah well said yeah i see in the chat there's already some in the chatico there's a troublemaker called some troll called van sachi he's coming with an interesting question which i think is valid uh vance do you want to ask or i can just quote you the difference yeah. between chaos yeah go ahead please <clears throat> yeah yeah what, uh, is there a difference between chaos and anarchy? If so, what is it? And Or is it just that the former follows the latter? In other words, does chaos ultimately ensue from pure anarchism? So I started the book with that quote from the Joker to, to connect with people's common perception of anarchy. And the rest of the book is basically a refutation of it, saying, no, it's not that. The anarchy is order. Anarchy is a higher level of order and what i wanted to do was strip back anarchy to its essence very literally what the title says okay because i found when i'd have this discussion with my very state inclined friends over the years uh, i didn't help myself always by incorporating ideas into anarchy which were not of the essence of it and the big one for me was government that anarchy if you'd ask people what it meant beyond chaos they might say well it means you get rid of the government right and that's not strictly what it means an archos is without archons whatever the whatever the archon is it's to be without that and that sounds good so what i propose the archon I'm, I'm addressing is is that of coercion and it's coercion masquerading as a benevolent force so what i do in the book is 
contrast coercion that doesn't really masquerade in a benevolent manner, and that being like organized crime or the mafia when they run protection rackets. Okay, now they might hand out presents at Christmas or something, but basically everyone knows the mafia is a criminal organization, <laughs> right? The, the attempts to disguise that are not that good. And their attitude is more for me and who cares about you? And they're, they're quite naked about that, right? But the state is a, um, is a compassionate, benevolent form of the same kind of force. Okay, so the policing is still kind of a protection racket, right? You still, you, if you don't pay for it, there's not like a, a market choice here. You still have to, you, you, they'll be the ones that come and drag you away to a cage. And that's set true of all the services the state provides. There's no choice. There's no option. There's no cooperation in them. It, it's coercion um, under this veil of compassion, under this veil of, of selflessness almost. So what I'm proposing um, with anarchy is that it is simply a movement towards what we already have, where we already have peer-to-peer interactions. Like the people who are signed up to Aonby to the member section are doing it because they get value from that and Miguel gets value from supporting it. It's not like the British Broadcasting Corporation where if you don't sign up to them, you, you, you don't have a choice. You get abusive letters and then someone knocks on your door. So that that's what I'm proposing a movement towards is higher level of cooperation and consent. Well, that sounds good. The question is though, <clears throat> there are always people who want power for its own sake and want to manipulate themselves into position of controlling others or getting something from others. And the question is, you know, if, if the, how do we make sure that the strong don't overcome the weak? Like, you know, like young people just overrunning, throwing elderly people out of their homes because there's nobody to stop them. Yeah. So what I'm not proposing, what this isn't is a solution to all problems. Like the, the question of how do we stop the strong overcoming the weak is a question that was asked thousands of years ago. It's asked now, and it will, we will be challenged by that a thousand years to come. It's just a, an archetypal problem of being human. So what yes. I'm not doing is finding perfect solutions. What I'm doing is contrasting different options. So currently we have this state-based model of security, because in this particular instance, it's a question of security where um, you have this one entity that has a monopoly on providing security over a certain area. Now you can also have some kind of private security, but it must exist under, uh, under this entity. Okay. And then it provides security from in a different form from surrounding groups. Okay. So I'll just give the example I gave in the book. So th this is really an outgrowth of the feudal system. If you think about it, where the Lord has his peasants and they give him sure. chickens and pigs and he, he provides protection for them. So I, I give an example, this is somewhat simplified, but in Iceland in the middle ages, um, the, the lords were not bound to a geographical area. So you could choose which lord provided security for you. And that meant if the lord wasn't doing anything, if he was just taking all your chickens and pigs and giving you nothing in return for it, you had the option to go to a different one. Um, so what I'm really proposing there is a kind of like, that's equivalent to a, a, a kind of privatized security service, whereby different companies could compete to provide. And um, then the, the receiver has a choice in that and has some power over them. So, cause, cause what you have in the, in the policing systems and um, here, if they, if they don't function, you've got nothing. And if it, so, um, I propose that probably, probably the police do more to on the whole to increase crime right now. Um, that's not me being against any particular police officer or anything like that, but just by the nature of their structures that, um, just an incident here recently, I know a fellow who was, um, punched in the street. And he went to the police about it. And the police said, well, if you carry this on, we're probably going to prosecute you because you defended yourself. Now, that's a, a slight shortening of, of a wider story, right? But there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can do about 
police officers turning up and arresting people for putting stuff on the internet that they don't like these days. So really it boils down to that there's no system that is made better through um, through monopolization, through having only one provider for it. Everything is made better through pluralism. And in terms of security, nobody really knows the best way to provide security. So like nobody really knows the best way to provide healthcare or education or the best way to podcast. So what you need is pluralism. You need lots of different people competing to provide, cooperating and competing so they can learn and grow and everything evolves together. Yeah, I've often thought of that uh, option myself, you know, like you subscribe to different garbage services or subscribe if you don't like the garbage service. And then the, the next thought I have is, well, aren't the garbage services or the police service going to go to war with each other to try to ace each other out? <laughs> and then you get kind of on the next so, level, right? Well. <laughs> like gangs in the cities, exactly what happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Sorry. Well, th this, this question only really comes up with um, regard to security. Okay, so with regard to garbage, so, because we have this whole market system where Coca-Cola and Pepsi might compete. And I'm, I'm not saying this because I favor these corporate behemoths who provide this sugary, crappy drink, but they don't usually kill each other, right? You don't have private companies. Like Miguel probably has never gotten a punch up with Alex over at Skeptico or something over, you know, who, who has the better podcast. <laughs> you know? I see him um, on the street. I you see him on the, maybe it could happen yet, but generally, right, there, there is this, um, our market systems work fine. But when we get into questions of security, it, it becomes, well, wouldn't they all, uh, wouldn't they all kill each other? Well, if, if this were the case, well, you have this um, anarchy of nations at the moment, right, where security forces cooperate beyond state, book, state boundaries. Uh, to the only way to resolve that would be to have a world government if you didn't have that. Um, so we're kind of happy enough with it on that level, but there's not necessarily the incentive because if I'm, um, if I'm employing a security firm to look after my property, I'm not employing them to go and like invade some like the housing estate next door and steal all their stuff and, and come back to me with a nice set of like patio furniture or something. That's, that's not a world I want to live in. So the vast majority of people paying for this service are not wanting like a, a violent uprising and yeah so that, that how's that no that makes sense and yeah i mean human nature is human nature there is no utopia anarchism is not going to solve human nature as it's been but uh i feel it's the best one or at least we should explore i mean what a churchill once said he said democracy is a disaster but it's the best one of all the other ones you know even he knew that as long as we're humans living together it's always going to be uh demiurgic if you would and yeah your book certainly quotes a lot of uh tony soprano and his reverse midas ch touch and yeah all taxation is theft uh, it's coercion or uh, like the mafia, our government does not create a damn thing. It just manages and decides to give contracts, whether it's the roads, even the army, it's uh, private companies are behind it. That's all it is. It's just this bad management. And like you said, it is coercion. We don't have a choice. If Biden or Trump wins in the next election, half of the population is basically oppressed. I mean, that's how they're going to feel because their guy now is putting is out and the guy they hate is throwing all these rules and supreme court judges so what kind of government is this that every four years you're either screwed or not same with your city and everything else so um and as far as the gnostics and i don't know if you want to speak to this richard um 
at the Astronosis Conference, because I was looking at our preparing for our interview, I asked academics like April DeConnick and others, well, and I know the answer, but are were the Gnostics anarchists? And they're like 100%. They, again, without archons, they call themselves the generation without the king. They were, they were, yeah, they were out of, they believed in uh, individual rights and uh, not following the law, although you never have records of Gnostics being uh, arrested by the Roman authorities, which is strange. But the one thing that the Gnostics were, didn't budge on because they came from the tradition of the Essenes and the Therapeutae and the, the Pythagoreans is that they were, that one of their main goals beyond Gnosis was healing. They believed in uh, psychic healing, magical potions to heal, healing on hands. And therefore, they also believed in uh, charity or help for the downtrodden and the poor, which is you may sound paradoxical, but the Gnostics were like, we don't want a government, but the poor and the hungry have to be taken care of. That's that's non-negotiable. And they got in trouble with Plotinus because Plotinus was like, oh, the you know, he was going for the government, the chain of being, and the the emperor is just an extension of the one. And screw you, Gnostics, uh, don't worry about the poor. So, um, what do you think of this, Richard? I know you kind of align with that, right? Do you feel that? Healthcare is a good thing. Uh, yes, yes, healthcare is a good thing. So, um, as I recall, I'm right about it in the book. As yeah. you've got to consider the trade-off, right? That the government can, at any moment, reach in, socialize healthcare, and then that will increase the provision. But that has massive downstream consequences. Okay, because if you think about the way it's provided and the way research is done. The market and the state models are so substantially different that mm -hmm. um, you're going to get very different long-term outcomes. So I look at the effect, particularly of the FDA in the book, the Food and Drug Administration, when it started heavily regulating the development of new medicines. And this was after the flamidahide scandal that hit Europe, didn't hit the United States so strongly. So mm -hmm. the United States took this as being, well, we did a good job here, so we should like beef this up a bit, and then we, we won't have this European disaster in the future. The, the consequence of introducing coercion is you, you having a coercive regulatory system. So everyone has to go through this one regulator. There's not a, a multiplicity of regulators. It means that if you think about the incentives um, in the FDA, if I work for them, I'm going to get in trouble when I approve a medicine that goes on to hurt people. I'm not going to get in trouble if I kick this medicine back 10 times and keep knocking it back to the manufacturers to improve further. All the people that die through lack of access to it I don't get in trouble for that. That's just, that's unseen, if you like, mm -hmm. the seen and the unseen. Um, if costs go up so much, the small independent producers of different developments of medicine, if they go out of business and you're only left with like three or four giant pharmaceutical firms, uh, that I'm not going to get in trouble for that. So by contrast to a consensual model, like you probably want some kind of regulation or someone to test a drug before you stuck it in your body or, right. or any kind of medicine. Um, so but if there's a, a multiplicity of providers that you don't have to go for any particular one of them, then there's a tension on them from two angles. So on the one hand, the, the regulating body cannot take forever to put a drug out, or I, I appreciate people who are into holistic medicine, but I'm just using this as a, a sort of abstract example. Um, because if they do, the, the company producing it is incentivized not to work with them again. But if they put out too soon, it hurts people, then their reputation as a regulator goes down. So you have a tension of forces on there, which produces more of an optimal outcome. So that that was my example, really, that 
with medicine that it, people really need to consider the, the massive consequences of introducing this element of coercion into medicine at all levels. Exactly. Yeah. Like you, you're saying anarchism and other, uh, other avenues or systems are much better for innovation. And we humans, that's how we survive. We innovate our way out of problems, out of disasters, out of hunger. That's, that's what makes us so much different. And if you take away, well, we start dying off. We start becoming, uh, uh, well, dark and uh, breaking breaking down in psychic ways on a collective level. So the other issue in anarchism, and of course you address this in your book, Richard, is that of property. Obviously, what, and you bring a lot of examples. You bring uh, the example of the guy with the statue. But anyway, tell the audience, how does anarchism deal with property beyond the government telling you what's yours and what isn't? Well, yeah, I suppose it's a rejection of that idea that you can you can um, have property removed from you. Okay, so I think there's kind of two pillars, right? There's no coercion and then there's property because if you don't know what property means, you can't really know if you're coercing anyone or not. Like if right. I just move into someone else's house, I'm like, well, we need a theory of property, right? So I give an example that really comes from John Locke about a man walking on the beach and he finds a clump of wood, takes it home, carves it. And then at that point, you probably wouldn't just go into his house and take it. It would feel something like be very unfair about that, like nicking this guy's statue. But if you saw yeah. the lump of wood on the beach half an hour before he did, you probably would feel okay. So some, some kind of magical act has happened there. But we have this capacity to turn the unowned into the owned. And we commonly agree upon that. And I noticed like my dogs have, a, I just saw it yesterday because she's got a puppy. And um, the the older dog had, she she gave the puppy two days grace and then had have serious words about going in her dinner bowl. Okay. <laughs> like that's it. When, I'm done playing this game. And so they have Man, a very limited sense of property. Like the, the circumference of this bowl, that's mine. <laughs> but if, beyond that, not so much. They couldn't say like own a holiday home in the South of France. That wouldn't um, like, I don't own a holiday home in the South of France, by the way, but just, you know, they, they couldn't compute that, what that would mean, but we do. So um, I just go for examples of that, of, um, what we commonly take to be, um, you know, a legitimate kind of ownership that we bestow this, this quality on the unowned. Um, so if I got to the ward and then you came along Miguel and wrestled it off me, you'd say like, well, that's, that's not right. But if you, if I was walking towards it and you charged in front of me, then maybe say, well, okay, well, that's just competitive. That's kind of okay. Um, depends what kind of person you are. Um, and so we have this common kind of theme of it, but the, we also have an exchange, right? So I could sell the statue to you. But the state comes along and says, well, I can take like 10% of that statue um, as a kind of taxation. And you don't have a say in that then. And so you see, so you could say like, Miguel, if, if you're like, you could act for benevolent reasons and say, well, that's a real nice statue. You know, I think that would look a lot better if it was on public display and you take mm -hmm. it out and you, you can justify that. And you can say, well, look, like before only Richard is benefiting from his work. But now like all these people that walk past it are. So this, this is like, I'm a really benevolent person here. I'm not an archon. I'm, I'm doing this for, for good reasons. <laughs> You're an Aeon. But, yeah. But the, um, the downside is of course, well, like now, like the cost of that, the unseen cost is that nobody is secure in their property anymore because we've all, uh, we've all validated like acts of theft and I'm not incentivized to produce anymore because I'm not going to go get more wood and carve it. So you, there are these unseen things go on and that's perhaps like, what's intriguing to me about the the gnostic perspective from this is that um, there are of course like bad and selfish people in the government but 
what's interesting is so many people think they're doing a necessary and benevolent thing and that the state is ultimately a necessary and benevolent entity. So yeah. the archons that really scare me more than like the mafia archons of the, I'm going to take yours because it's good for me and I don't care about you is the archon that says, I love you. I'm going to take care of you. You know, I'm just going to take this. You have to go with me on this. You know, that's a, a much scarier archon to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. The road to hell. Good intentions. What do you think Vance? Uh, does this idea make a sense to you about property or do you have a question for Richard? Yeah, well, um, the, the, the um, real question is, like, what laws um, are agreed upon to regulate, you know, whose property is which, you know, and that's, that's you know, like, when you sell things, uh, and so forth. Um, the definition of property is really the thing that, that, is, that is at issue. So, um, you know, if I buy a house, but then I, you know, I'm a bad neighbor and I'm, adversely affecting other people, you know, you know, of course they, they shouldn't take my property, but at some point, like if I start fires and don't, so yeah. they're, 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 they're extreme situations where you can threaten other people by, you know, indirectly by what you're doing on your own property. Quote unquote. I, I get what you're saying. So th this is the, one of the reasons that really pushed me to write the book was struggling with and coming to terms with that question myself, because as I said at the start, I wanted to move away from anarchy as no government because it's no government in the sense that we currently understand governments, but it's no, it's not no governance. Okay. It doesn't mean so that you can't have a rule at the football club that says you can't wear your muddy boots in the changing room anymore or something like that. You have a governing body of the club that sets rules down. So with regard to that question of property, I gave a, an example of like, let's say somebody acquires some land, nobody owns it to start with. They come along and they, they, mix their labor with it is the term John Locke uses so in the sense that picking the piece of wood up from the beach, I'm mixing labor with it. That's, right. that's the magic act that makes it mine. Mm -hmm. And on this land, uh, he, our owner, uh, builds, uh, an apartment block, hundred flats in it. Okay. Now people might purchase them. They might rent them off him. He might set himself up as the king of the apartment block, but those people are going to want some kind of governing body. They're going to need to know who cleans the internal areas. Okay, How do we put money aside to replace the roof? How do we, no, not every apartment is going to want to get their own window cleaner to put scaffolding up to just clean their window and do the next. There are some activities that you want to be done in a government-like manner. They're just more efficient. But there are some activities like uh, you might collectivize window cleaning, but you're probably not going to collectivize like... Um, buying books for the apartment or Netflix subscriptions, because everyone has their own kind of individual tastes on that. Right. Okay? And when you collectivize, it becomes restrictive. Uh, but who cares about window cleaning? It doesn't matter what, what company you have in there. So you need some kind of governing body for it, whether it's democratically elected, whether it's um, a dictatorship run by the, the guy that built it. But the point is, you can only exert that governance over land that you've come to legitimately own and homestead. This is not like the British Empire arriving on the west coast of Australia and saying everything <laughs> over the east coast. That's mine now. Yep. No. And um, that's just the way. It so it limits the power that um, that states have, that governments have, to take control of vast areas. And then you have this immense multiplicity arise. So if this guy, this developer, does set himself up as the king of the apartment block and he does a really bad job, then the property price is going to fall. He's going to go out of business and all the places that do a good job will flourish equally. He's incentivized to do a good job because it's his property. It's not like when you have 
every administration that comes into the US just runs that national debt higher. It's not their property. They're going to make millions of pounds out of it. They're going to get some deal working for the World Bank afterwards or something. So it doesn't matter if they set fire to the country because their their wealth increases. So it, it ties governance into a direct ownership uh, interest in the, the quality of what they're owning. Of course, we have homeowners associations. I don't know if you have that where you are, but um, that are exactly that. <clears throat> They're elected, yeah. they have boards, and they wind up to be archons, you know? Oh, they, they, every they, time. Oh. Yeah, I, it's, it's human nature. I, I'm not saying that it solves the problem. I mean, it limits the problem. Okay. Yeah. They, 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 they're archons, but they're not archons over 10 million acres of land. Yeah, it's a divide and conquer. <laughs> little bit. I like the idea of getting groups of archons fighting each other. And this way they stay out of your hair. <laughs> That's the way, you know, the American Constitution was supposed to be set up, right? And and the, and the two-party system, of course, then they get together and they said, all right, well, let's not fight each other. Let's band together and fight them. Right. So, But I, I agree with your uh, general trend of <clears throat> getting rid of the coercion, getting rid of the monopolies. That's really, you know, getting rid of the concentrations of power because that, that's what the archons are all about, right? Concentrating power and lording it over, literally. Yeah, uh, tyranny cannot exist without centralization. That's just a fact. You know, the less centralization, yeah. the less power the demiurge and the despots have. So that's, that's yeah, that's mathematical. And I like that scene in your book, Richard. Where you're talking about Tyrion being in jail, <laughs> trying to explain property to his jailer because he doesn't have it right there. Could you share with the audience? I forgot how funny that was. Yeah, Maud, the jailer. Maud, yeah. He's um it's in the I think it's in the it is in the Game of Thrones book, but it's certainly portrayed in, in the show where he he's Tyrion's in this sky cell and if he he can fall out of it and die so he decides that enough of this and he says to more the day look i'm a lannister i'm very rich and if you if you go and get a message to the the lady of this land i'll give you gold and no. more checks him up and down and no gold and whacks him with a stick because i don't have it on me and he has to say to this property is an abstract concept and i just used it because it illustrates that it's so obvious to us property is an abstract concept, but we're all a bit like Maud, really. We don't really think, well, what does it mean? Like, Maud can't understand it. If it's not on you, then what do you mean you own it? Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. But we've, we've developed this idea without really thinking about it and without really thinking about what happens if we violate it and what happens if we have an institution right in the center of society that continuously violates it. What, what are the downstream consequences of that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, even my wife and I were talking again, we're trying to figure out what, where to move in our destiny. And we're like, well, what does it matter? If we buy the house, we don't really own the house because really the bank owns the house. Let's be realistic. Uh, even if, and if we pay a down payment, they can, let's say we buy the house outright. Well, you have imminent domain. You've got to get there. There's permits, you know, the government is still inside your damn house that you've paid off. So mechanics, so of yeah, Get your yeah, roof yeah. fixed, right? And the <laughs> roofer takes over your the house. Home, the homeowners uh, association can have you kicked out or put a lien on you. I mean, it's like we don't really own our property. So I said, well, I'm just going to get, I'm going to buy more shotguns and get more guns. And then my wife will end up like Waco. And I'm like, yes, I think that's the natural conclusion of liberty in this country. When it comes down to it, if you are truly free, and don't get me wrong, I mean, the, the cult was, you know, 
had some odious ideas, uh, but still, you're going to end up like, uh, yeah, you're going to end up in the newspaper or something. It's just the way it is. I mean, when I watch, there's this documentary, Richard, I think it's what's a wild country about Osho. And uh, even though Osho was Osho, right? He was doing his weird weird stuff. But as soon as they bought the land and they set up their own government, they were doomed. The federal government and the FBI had a bullseye on there. Even if it would have been a perfect commune, like well-run, no, you know, no exploitation of people and no Rolls Royces, whatever, the federal government was not going to allow that pocket of freedom in this country. It just it can't do it. Mm. and do yeah. you uh go ahead no go, go ahead go ahead I'll... you know, you know um th- there was a show in the in the 90s i guess it was max headroom and it portrayed a futuristic society great show i recommend to everybody yeah. and the only way people could really get out of all this is they became blanks quote unquote they had no records no nothing they lived in you know they they were like nomads and they uh they lived in buses like blank reg lived in a bus and broadcasted his his you know his people's movement from from his bus and drived around if they were after him uh, it, it seems like anonymity is one of the best ways of escaping the whole thing but then that's a whole nother lifestyle yeah indeed so I guess the next question, I guess, Richard, would be examples. And, of course, I gave an example of uh, countries uh, practice anarchism all the time when they do trade agreements. As long as the USA and China and Russia can stay out of it, they go fine. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's, of course, an example in India. There was some company that uh, brought in all foreigners and everything in India, but they found themselves in like a no-man's land where neither of the local governments in India would take responsibility. And so this company and everybody in the company started uh, putting money in. They got their own water, their own housing, their own security. And it went really well. It's one of those examples because it worked. And it had to work because these people were going to die. I mean, no government was going to take care of their needs from the roads to the water to the to the plumbing and and they got together but in your view have you seen any good examples you want to share of the audience of anarchism that works yeah well might not be the answer you're looking for but i generally say the example is right here and now all around you it's when you went out and bought a cup of coffee and you didn't have to punch the guy to get it and he didn't have to steal your wallet to pay for it, it it's when i agree to come on a podcast we all have a good time like we we experience anarchy continuously through our lives. So yeah, there are examples. I mean, there's, um, I know there was a guy who set up a place called Liberland between Serbia and Croatia, I think it was. There was a little strip of land that after the um, the war and the agreements there, nobody had claimed and he went and moved over there. He had to kayak up a river or something and, and set up this little property. Now, I don't know how that's going. Um, I know that um, Honduras had these kind of worker zones because it became a kind of second world country in terms of the technology jobs you had there. So Hmm. um, you could earn a reasonable salary and own a mobile phone, but it wasn't like possible to walk down the street using that phone about it being robbed from you. So people set up kind of private, uh, privately policed communities there. I think the the recent elections uh, put a dampener on that. Um, It's very hard to say because I don't know these things can often have shadow sides to them too. Um, so it, it's hard to, like you said, the Osho thing, these, how these communities go. 
But I really think the best example is the here and now, the world we experience and enjoy every day in contrast to interacting with any coercive institution. Like if, if I wasn't to pay my Netflix fees, I would get some polite emails and then they'd retract the service. When I don't pay the BBC TV license, I get these letters in red telling me someone's going to come around and drag me away to a cage, you know? So that's, that's the contrast, right? They may not like Netflix, right? You might think they're abhorrent and immoral and, and all the rest. And yeah, you, can stop, paying <laughs> but you can stop paying your subscription. If you don't like the BBC, well, that's tough. You won't watch anything. And this is, this is a UK example, right? So I know Americans, so you, quite, you, you have to pay your license. Yeah, sorry. You have, I, to, yeah. pay, you have like, to pay the license. If you have a television set in the in the UK, you have to pay a license to have it. Right? You can't to have it. And I mean, you can own one and keep it in your garage. But if you turn it on and watch TV on it, it doesn't matter if you never watch the British Broadcasting Corporation. You have to pay uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Um, otherwise, they will they will come around your house and bang on your door and uh, socialism right? you off to jail. Oh, the wow. government owns the air, and you got to buy it. Right. Yeah. So it it by. By contrast, America is an example of an anarchist society compared to Britain then in terms of TV, because you don't have that. You don't have to, like, what is it, CBS there. So you don't have to compulsively pay into uh, this, or you can't watch any of the other channels. Yeah, for certain. I think the founding fathers were certainly closer to anarchism or minarchism, as it called, uh, their, their original vision of how things are. I mean, there are arguments that uh it was more oppressive than you think because i think uh most people don't don't know that before the founding fathers and the revolution uh the east coast was like babylon boston all these cities were just debauched places of drugs and music and prostitution and all that and it's always like the founding fathers had to come and almost clean it up so it was a wild west erosion in the united states because you have you don't have a country that's coming out of the depths of time you have a country that starts at a particular time and it starts with particular principles and then you can check in and see how's that going and particularly post the civil war through the progressive era you start to see this redefining as well you know maybe freedom was all very good for the 19th century but this is a new progressive age now and we need the state to be more involved we've got science now they can make better predictions everyone just doing their own thing it's chaotic it doesn't work what we need is centralized planning and this this ideology rises and it retracts a bit and then it comes forward again and it comes forward very strongly in franklin roosevelt's time and then lyndon johnson pushes it further and it ties in with this massive expansion of, of foreign policies where well, we were going to be isolationists and just keep to ourselves and not go out and run the world but we just need to do this little thing in cuba because they're close by and the spanish are being really oppressive there and actually the european there's a big thing going on in europe now now we can't let the germans get away with it oh that the germans are at it again and now the vietnamese that and it just expands and expands and expands <laughs> until it becomes a global empire so you have this this little seed this almost anarchist say or very liberal very classically liberal minica state but it has this little seed in it of statism of coercion and that seed just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it takes over everything and here we are here we are indeed it's uh there's one example well uh there's a lot of examples that's why i like your books because again you you tie it into game of thrones or the sopranos like the the feech la mana from the sopranos the famous mm -hmm. one with the with the lawnmowers and I always yeah i thought it was an intense episode and of course like yeah. you said the idiot of course easily gets fooled and gets back to jail by chrissy uh but there is the the chilling example that i kept thinking about all night um 
and it reflects our societies, what happened in China. And you talk about when Mao came into power, they were like, uh, well, we have only a finite number of grain. Well, guess what? Of course, you got to cre- you got to project your shadow, create a boogeyman. Sparrows, sparrows eat too much grain. So if we eliminate the sparrows, humans will have more grain. And everybody bought into it, and people were killing sparrows and breaking the eggs and scaring them so they'd get so exhausted and died. And after a while, the whole population was almost extinct, right? Of the sparrows, but guess what? The sparrows, what? They were eating bugs and other insects. So, of course, what happened is it became worse because suddenly you had all these insects destroying the grain and you had the Chinese, of course, starving. And this yeah, is when you say worse, of, <laughs> it's huh? like a lot worse, like 30 million a people lot. starve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, biggest it was t- history. yeah. For killing sparrows. And it, it's this really stupid idea that you have with centralized planning and governments is that if I add something or if I remove something, It'll fix the problem. Like if I just raise taxes here or cut this, this sort of really dumb linear thinking that doesn't take into account the complexity of nature, the complexity of humanity, the freedom of humanity. And it just, things just blow. Well, they just get worse. And your Chinese example, I think is the perfect example. Don't you think? The scary thing is I looked at that for long enough to come to see it is not stupid, right? I could see if you're in China a logic. at that time, right? And you look back through Chinese history, there are these periodic famines. There was a massive one in 1915. And you could think, you know, if we just got rid of those damn sparrows and we made the big, <laughs> you could see how it made sense, right? And then the problem is it's not a little experiment. You're going to run in your backyard and see if it helps or you don't do it. No, you've got the power to do it all over China. And this is the problem of benevolence. Like if this was some evil emperor who didn't care whether the poor lived or died, right, then they'd do a lot better. But when you have someone who tries to be benevolent benevolent, and comes in and kills all the sparrows, yeah, worst famine in history, Cre- created through, an, an, I think, a genuine effort to be benevolent. Right? That's what's, Mao did things later, which really weren't genuine, like the whole thing about um, having everyone stop growing food so they could just produce steel because that would be, you know, then they built up this great military or the cultural revolution. These were really malevolent acts. These, these was no uh, care or concern, but that, what's terrifying is probably the worst thing Mao ever did was a, like a genuine effort to increase food supplies. And killed millions of people. Mm. Yeah. The Chinese and the Russians, God, those people have been through so much in the last hundred years. Uh, you got to feel for them and yeah, it could happen. I think uh, the UK is farther down the road into this sort of collectivism and borgism don't you think richard the united states is starting to crumble but i think uh, the uk is pretty much there wouldn't you say yeah i think there are it's kind of hard for me to see because i'm inside it and i've always been inside it i think there are things that um there are just traditions we don't have here like we don't have a strong libertarian tradition okay here like um there are, there are concepts that get spoken about on the American news and such that just wouldn't really make a lot of sense here because we, we don't think that way. Um, like when Barack Obama wanted to bring the, the healthcare thing in, in about 2009, I'm sat around having lunch with my friends in the pub and it comes on TV, Americans protesting, like no state controlled healthcare or, or whatever. And no. we all look at the TV, right? Aghast. Like who, who on earth wouldn't want the government to run healthcare? I mean, that's crazy, you know? And it took a few <laughs> years later for us, oh yeah, there are already downsides to the government running healthcare and they're quite substantial. Uh, but like the, there's very few people here that would ever question that. And that goes across the board. Like there's a, 
no one really thinks, isn't it weird that I have to pay a license to own a television or use a television set? It's, it, it's more ingrained. Uh, I don't think our politics has quite the animosity the US has, and it's not quite the media spectacle. It might be because our prime minister is not a head of state the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, um, these are kind of weird mythical concepts, but the prime minister does not take on the kind of spiritual or mythical significance that no. a president takes on in the US mind. We have no John Kennedy figure in this country. Mm-hmm. They can be thrown yeah, out more easily there too, right? Prime Minister vote of no confidence, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's can't get rid of the president that easy here. Nope. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, yeah, free speech seems to be less. You can get thrown in jail for social media posts. Although the tabloids in England, they are magnificent at their lying. They're better than the United States when it comes to just blatant lies. When you read some of these. Uh, these magazines it just cracks me up uh how do they get yeah. away with it richard because yeah i mean yeah how do they get away with it well they do pay out on libel i think but not still right they just make more money selling peddling the papers yeah but i mean if you ever know anyone who's been featured in the papers it's interesting to talk to them because they're they just get everything wrong <laughs> they don't there's no real adherence to honesty and um, it's quite it's quite incredible yeah the, the tabloids here we, we do see more of that and I think British people are kind of shocked by this um, when people are being arrested for social media posts and so on. I, I don't think there's a great sort of well of support for this kind of thing. Uh, but if you're not reading certain publications, you probably don't even know about it. For one, and it, it's a strange world we're slipping into. I don't know if we continue down this path or if there's some kind of backlash. Like I have equal concern that the 1930s would be kind of fascist, actually. It'd be a kind of right-wing reaction to to what we're seeing now where all the uh, non-conformists have to go back into the closet yeah that, 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 that's a problem it's always the danger yeah you go to one extreme as a way to solve this problem and you're right back this that's typically cycle. what happens when the left rises up like the the times when the left took over like you could say russia china and cambodia it's all coming out of like war-torn states abject poverty terror and all the rest any other time that the left has attempted to rise up, it just gets like smacked down and Jakarta option, you know, that's what happened in Indonesia or Chile or across Latin America. And you end up with some very hard dictatorial government. So, um, yeah, that, that could equally be, uh, yeah, sorry. Taking some no, 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 you're right. I we, mean, we could all move into some wonderful future too. Let's, I mean, yeah. Cause I mean, communism and fascism were just uh, reactions to, uh, the disaster of the uh, the Great Depression. Capitalism really botched things up. So, of course, these movements were allowed to come up. And then, well, they took over. And then you get the sort of interplay between these forces. Uh, it's just the way it is. Um, Vance, any questions from you or the audience? Yeah, Occult Fan has joined us. And he wanted to know, Richard, uh, what's your opinion on the American Revolution? Um, Occult Fan states that he's a descendant of the Harrington House uh, in Lexington. Um, so what's your take on the American Revolution? And would you fight if you felt there was a real chance for a positive change for you personally? Um, so I'm going to have to take something of a pass on the American Revolution. I'm doing a, a history series on my podcast called The Energy Vampire, And I jump into U.S. history in the 1890s. Okay, because it's a, it's a good point to jump in because they've just sorted the Indian problem. And now they're going off overseas to look for new en- uh, look for new enemies. So sort of the Spanish-American War, the Congress of Hawaii. I'm not great on anything before that. Okay, so I've read interesting stuff on the American Revolution. I remember reading 
uh, on the question of violence, uh, Mark Kozlanski's uh, book, Nonviolence, the History of a Dangerous Idea, uh, where he kind of, kind of made a case against the revolution. Yeah, I thought that, that's kind of my limit on it. And the second part of the question was, would I fight for if I thought it was going to make a substantial difference? Um, well, I mean, I'd obviously like, I'm not coming from a, like a pacifist position. Okay. So I think that it's, I suppose this is a question I, I've kind of wavered on. I've been very attracted to ideas of nonviolence in the past, particularly by the book I just mentioned, Kozlanski, um, and the idea that nonviolent movements are by, by no means perfect, but more effective at bringing down power structures by continuously holding the moral high ground. Um, I suppose maybe through exposure to American gun culture, I've come to question that more and think, okay, well, how far do you take that? Because do you not do you not use force to maintain law and order in society? So I'm I'm sort of conflicted about that myself. Um, I generally think efforts that, that use violence to make the world a better place are corrupting to the soul and ultimately ineffective. Uh, so I'm not sort of drawing absolutes there, but that, that's generally what I conceive of them maybe you could go and uh, steal all the muskets you know when they're not looking <laughs> that's not violent right well they're, they're, it doesn't have to be violent all the time i mean look at uh, poland look at romania yeah the dictator got hung but uh it was pretty much uh there are times and you could look up history where the people just they move they take over and it doesn't have to be people shooting each other <laughs> It doesn't have to be the French Revolution or anything like that. So there are. Yeah, this is the thing. Because if you, if I decide to spill blood, okay, I am not the most violent. But might be the least violent, but I'm not the most violent person around. So if I decide to spill blood, there's like a hundred other guys who are going to spill a lot more around this. So you can start these things. You don't know where they're going to end. There are like fascinating examples. Again, I'm taking this from Kozlanski's book, um, Nonviolence: History of a Dangerous Idea. Uh, how the um, people in Denmark protected the Jewish population almost down to a man from. The, mm. the Nazi, they recognized they could not resist in the same manner the French did. So they would engage in um, go slows, work stoppages, protests. There you go. And the, um, so the essentially set up a negotiation of, okay, well, we will basically function as a society in the way you want us to. And that only we only do that, however, if um, our Jewish population are, are protected or they're moved out or, or so on. So um, they did, yeah, there are very powerful examples of, of nonviolent resistance. Yeah, I think also, I think, I don't know if it's the Danish or the Norwegians, but uh, the Germans would have the Jews put on those stars. So the whole population would start wearing those stars to confuse the Nazi soldiers and the right. Nazis just Nazi, gave yeah, up. Yeah. It's like, yeah. we can't arrest them. We don't know who's Jewish and who's, uh, you know, uh, whatever else. So there, there There's are an immense creativity to nonviolent solutions. Like, yeah, like, India, why, like another example initially go to like a punch in the face is the best way to solve this problem. It's the, probably the first one that comes to <laughs> anyone's mind, right? Or pick up the gun, but nonviolence requires almost a, a dipping into that creative well of consciousness, right? And the emergence of something more. You know, along those lines, what do you think of this concept? I always imagined um, to get rid of all this, you know, uh, archon like nature in the government, the government should be way more in the business of providing good information to everybody. So as a backdrop to, you know, the independent different businesses, like say you have a whole bunch of coffee companies and one of them starts, you know, putting cancerous ingredients or whatever. Well, if the government couldn't coerce, but could 
publish all the ingredients, you know, in other words, in other words, coerce them to be honest, <laughs> then, you know, we could discover these bad actors uh, among all the different businesses or, you know, institutions. And, um, you know, I, I always thought the government would be, a, that would be a great role for the government rather than just keeping more and more secrets and protecting, you know, powerful corporations from, you know, from perpetrating things on the population. Yeah, you could, I mean, I'm sure you can have better or worse in these things. I would also think that surely there's an incentive for some company to compare coffee brands and do this kind of thing. And you do find it in, I forget the name of it now, but there is a company that evaluates um, the efficacy and dangers of drugs independently of the FDA. Or you have in the States, you have something called Underwriters Laboratories, right? Which stands yes. for electrical goods. I'm, I'm assuming they need to do that to get into department stores, right? The department, it's not just that individual customers are going in and saying like, is this got the, the UW stamp on it that you actually get into because the department store is incentivized not to sell lamps. So they're going to set someone's house on fire. Yeah. The buyers probably would favor the UL. Now there's a CE label. I think that's kind of overtaken that, but right. yeah. Here's another issue with anarchism, Richard, and that is the idea of if we don't have the government, nobody will be educated and we'll all just be dragging our knuckles across the street. Like it, the government is the main source of education. And I love what you said. Uh, basically, obviously, it's a complete lie. It's complete bullshit. Uh, and one of your examples is that uh, no matter what or what people think, going against what people think, medieval peasants could read. Mm, yeah, Tell us about that. So this chapter, uh, I think it's the longest one in the book. Not by a long way, but it is. And it's the one that I had to pause and take deep breaths as I was writing, okay? Because the other examples <laughs> I give, like I've never really had a bad experience of government health, kind of very infrequent times. I've gone to the hospital, it's been really good. Um, I've never been really involved with the social welfare system. I've not been conscripted into war. I've not a bad experience with the police. However, I, like everyone else, the one we all share, right? We're all like victims of the educational system for a dozen years or so. And yeah. I, I felt more kind of like righteous anger about this than others. And I had to somewhat keep that in check, but readers will notice it has a different tone. <laughs> You were singing Pink open. Floyd, another brick in the wall. Another brick, yeah, writing. yeah. Well, I, I think I probably went in as a great believer in it, okay? And then it was my disillusion, my, uh, my angst arises from my disillusionment uh, with it. So, um, yeah, the, the medieval peasants, I mean, I, I literally saw this on a, a YouTube presentation by a, a medievalist about it fascinatingly interesting because it, it's the idea, like if the government had a school that taught small kids how to walk, Okay, no one would believe that kids learn to walk basically by themselves or just walking around their parents' house. And then you could extend it down to crawling and then initially breathing, right? You could have some doctor on site to like massage the chest to get the child back. Yeah. And we would just remove from this sense. But it's one of those things that when you think about it, it's so self evidently true. It's like, well, hang on, imagine like the, um, the value that reading conveys, okay, of being able to write, being able to communicate from some kind of like, whether you're scratching things in bark or however you're doing it, it's immense, right? And what do you need to do? You basically need to be able to remember like 26 characters and their associated sounds and you need to sort of get it roughly right. And, um, and then you can sort of arrange them in a way that, that makes sense. And if you consider like the average Englishman, 
like knows the position at any given time of 20 different football teams in the league and not right. just now but they can tell you like where they were in 1987 and what goals <laughs> they scored when they played in the FA Cup semi-final in 1994 and so on the idea that like people would find this incredibly overwhelmingly difficult without some sort of state stepping in so apparently um, apparently what it is uh, the uh, why why we think peasants were illiterate is because to be literate in the past meant to be able to read latin and they couldn't read oh. latin okay but they could um, they were literate in the sense that we mean literate, or at least a much greater percentage of them were than we think. So it just speaks to people. Obviously, if education is valuable, people move to uh, to educate themselves. Yes. Yeah, it's an old trick. I mean, in ancient times, Greco-Roman times, you talk about the barbarians. And again, we think of Conan and these, again, knuckle draggers. But a barbarian was just somebody who didn't speak Greek. Of course, there were educated societies like Egypt and Persia and, you know, some of the Germanic tribes. But again, it's this, it's this continuous mind control. And yeah, I mean, the education system is a complete disaster. Uh, my 11-year-old daughter, she's homeschooled and uh, my wife did a test on her about a month ago. She's reading at a college level and uh, it's not much more work. It's just uh, better education. Let kids... Uh, they have all the tools and they have all the potential like breathing and walking. So mm -hmm. it's much better than this uh, by rote or memorization system we have today that actually destroys the mind of, of children. Well, I think it brings up the, like beneath this act of benevolence that the Archon, the Archon of the state, right. the Archon of education puts out, there's a kind of intense rage when that's rejected so i put in examples of like from the uk media of like the police turning up at kids homes and dragging them out of their beds in the morning to go to oh school and it's like well this is because the, the state thinks it's done this wonderfully benevolent thing it's taking all this money off the populace to provide education for children they get a free education and when that's rejected that benevolence turns to a kind of infantile rage that, that it's been rejected and you just get to this crazy position. So you're going to drag someone out of their bed into this building so they could be taught Shakespeare. Like, how's that going to work? That That's not going to work. <laughs> right. And like, I, I just remember sitting on the, the school bus myself with kids, like after like coming out of their exams, tearing their poetry books up and words were flying through the air in one direction and Blake going in the other. And because uh, they just, they didn't care. Right. They just wanted to get out and become plumbers and joiners and mechanics. And I see them years later and they're very successful plumbers and joiners and mechanics. Right. But like the idea that a 15 year old is going to be really interested in 19th century poetry. And what, what I was, yeah, but I was, but that was me. I was different. Everybody's different. I remember being yes. 10 years old Ab and no, reading absolutely. tiger, tiger by Blake and saying, this is me. But, that doesn't mean the kid next to me had the same skills. He was interested in plumbing mechanics. So I did have this dark thought, right? That what this is all about is that when the, like the educated classes, when a plumber comes to their house, they want them to have had the schooling experience. So they know their place. It's right. So, you know, like, yeah. Remember when you weren't good at Wordsworth? <laughs> My dark kind of thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And of course, yeah. And of course it was so stupid because I'm sure all of us agree. It'd be like a summer holiday. And by the fall, we'd go back. It's like, I don't remember a damn thing I learned last year. Most of us, it's like we just memory dumped all our stuff, except what we wanted, you know, read. We can still read and stuff, but it was all yeah, just it, a big waste of time. You just have to move on in a second. I'll just talk about this all the time, but I'm going to see my friend after this. And to this day, we still laugh about the three months we spent studying Levi's jeans commercials from the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, like, they're not... 
What was that about, right? Because it's supposed to be this deeper lesson, but it wasn't. We were just literally writing down what happened. In it. And I can, I mean, if you can have you back on the show if you want to talk about Levi's jeans commercials in the 1980s, because I know quite a lot about it. But I don't know why I know anything about it. It's just this bizarre, like they, they have to fill the year with something. So, so yeah, it's confusing. And Levi's, because we're here. <laughs> we exist. Uh, you, you know, one of the pro problems, though, with the educational system is, you know, like nothing in this world is easy. Um, when you think about the higher education progress of society in general, like what enabled us to invent things and make industry and blah, 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 assuming you think that's good, which not everybody does. Um, it may be that it's not self-sustaining if only the interested people went on beyond, you know, reading and you know, reading and arithmetic, there might not be enough people left to go further to support the educational institution. So they have to drag everybody in, drag everybody else, so there's enough people um, to, to pay for it all. You maybe, mean in the sense that becomes a self-sustaining bureaucracy? The, the, the yeah. University system. Yeah, they need to they need to fill it now. Yeah. Yeah. Just like in this country uh, right now, I'm getting the impression that American universities can't survive without importing a lot of students from overseas because there's just enough, not enough people that are interested in this country or either that or the institutions, you know, the colleges and the yeah. universities became too big. Well, I think that's, that's another huge problem with the state that you do create these self-sustaining bureaucracies. So whatever other explanations we have for the goings on in the world of like conspiratorial or whatever else, a part of it is just people have to like, okay, so I think part of the reason we had a, the first Gulf War back in the 90s is because this giant central command was created to stop the Russians coming down into Persia and taking all the oil. And then the Soviet Union broke up. And well, what do we do with that? We're, we're all going to have to find new jobs in the private sector. Or or we could have a war in Iraq. Now, it just seems like that would be a better option at this point. Yeah. <laughs> right. We'll replace the communists with the evil Muslims. and then Because when you're know, being right. paid by the taxpayer and it's not really voluntary, then then you have that option. Yep, there's an archetypical pattern. Absolutely. Oh, Lord. Well, why don't we d discuss a little bit your book, uh, Measuring Mandates, because... Uh, it does, like you said, it does relate, and it does talk about the the failure of a centralized. Uh, uh, we only want what's good for you kind of system that has basically changed the course of history in Western society, probably forever. And we are in this sort of brave new world. And for the audience, uh, Richard has plenty of statistics and graphs and like uh, he asks a lot of questions for you to consider. You're not really judging. You're just trying to tell people, well, look at this and what are we going to do about it? But we'll tell probably better tell the audience about the book. Okay. So I think we all understand the audience understand that I have to be careful in the way I talk about this. Keywords. Yeah. Golden language involving carrots and, and <laughs> all sorts of like, Words yeah. don't mean what they mean because we just get booted off uh, certain social media platforms otherwise. So um, measuring the mandates was really, uh, well, it was, for me, it was cathartic, okay? Because this thing happened over three years where the world went kind of insane and we were suddenly being told, you need to do this, 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 and this. And everything you need to do changed, often reversed. Whatever it was last week wasn't necessarily what it was this week, but it was always essential that you did it, or everyone was going to die, and um, and then you're going to kill Granny, whatever. So, 
it was a chance to look back and go, okay, okay, it's kind of quietening down now. So was any of that true? Any of it? Any of it? And the, give the short answer is, my short answer is no, right? So it was actually written, um, I put it as part of a, a group here that were concerned about the, the mandates in our local area for submission to, um, we, we submitted it to an inquiry looking into the government's handling of it. And then I took out the references to my particular um, geographical area and made a kind of international version of it. So I go through um, looking at the different aspects of it from the, the things you had to put on your, your faces. Was that uh, justified? Where did that come from? To the right. idea that we all need to, to stay at home. Where did that arise from? Doesn't seem to be an idea uh, before that. Is, can you see it successful at all? Is there any, any demonstration of that? Do you, do you see mountains of corpses piling up in the countries that didn't do it? Or is there no distinction at all? Um, to the, to where this thing came from initially, to the kind of origin stories, which seem to be shrouded in mythology to me, and, and um, yeah, very very difficult to understand. Um, to the thing that I was calling a carrot, that like it was absolutely essential you took, and you know the hospitals were just full of people that didn't take them apparently, or unless they weren't, and um, and then I think probably the most original chapter in it is is the first one actually on iatrogenic deaths, doctor induced deaths okay and did you um did you spot the image on the cover miguel i said there was a little gnostic image on the cover it did but what am i missing so the cover is composed of all these different images of the past few years of um, british state propaganda yeah. about it and all the rest and i wrote uh, a little article right at the start of this period called uh, conjuring the thing right conjuring the name of the thing i won't and um, I used an image from Hieronymus Bosch's painting. It might be a student. Yeah, I Bosch, noticed that. Yes, Bosch, yes. The Conjurer, right? So yeah. Um, and I replaced. So it's it's the Conjurer is um is doing his um cup and ball trick. You know, where you have three cups and the balls under one, and he's moving yeah. around, and you do a sleight of hand, and then you have the dupe there in the audience who's really leaning forward, getting drawn into this, and as he's doing it, someone's picking his pocket. So. Interpreted esoterically, you could say that there's something about the material world. The conjurer is the magician who sets up a consciousness dropping into, being absorbed into material, forgetting its true identity and having something taken from it um, in that. And I, I replaced the, the balls with little images of the thing, right? And my suggestion was that... Um, Okay, this might be a real thing. The death rates are spiking across the world, sure. But if we only pay attention to that, then we'll destroy our economies, we'll lose our civil liberties, this bad thing, and you can't allow your attention to be narrowly absorbed. And then about a year later, I realized that I was the dupe in this, that I'd actually been taken in by the statistics and the graphs and believing that this thing was going around doing all the killing. And I came to, and this might be controversial, you might not entirely agree, but this is what I made the case for. I came to see that I, what I'd lost through my own kind of fear reaction, my own kind of like, oh my God, this is happening reaction, was that when you start making changes in a complex system, the whole system moves to respond. So if you announce this thing is on its way, this beast is coming in from the east, this monster, it's going to kill us all. Medical systems react, they change, they, they kick all the old people out of hospital. They don't let any OP from Kelms in the hospital. This is an Amnesty International report about the UK I'm quoting here. They say, well, you know, if people have this deadly thing, um, then they're, they're obviously going to die. There's no point in keeping them around. So get them on the end of life drugs early. Um, don't give them food and water because they're not coming back from this. We know how deadly it is. It's got like a 3% death rate. Okay. Mm -hmm. Changes 
in and of themselves affect death rate. And the changes I make the case are a better explanation of the spiking death rate than the thing that's supposed to be spiking the death rate. So uh, it, the book is really an assessment of the state makes its promise. It used to make its promise in the age of terrorism that it will protect us from the bad Muslim men. And now it's protecting us from this new bad thing. Does that check out? And the, and the answer is no. All the things it did, there's no evidence it worked. There is evidence it probably made things worse. Um, and perhaps unlike 9-11, because I believe that there were actual terrorists, there is an organization called Al-Qaeda, and it all gets mm -hmm. more there as they intertwine with intelligence agencies. But I think there is something there. Um, mm -hmm. Unlike that, the deaths themselves, in this case, are actually caused by the state itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, for the audience, you have to read the book. Uh, yeah. And Richard really takes some, uh, he deals more with excess deaths and all these stupid charts that you would see during the, during the situation. So you get a, a better view. And of course, I mean, without a doubt, things like ventilators and that's the government admits did more damage than good. A lot of the new drugs. Uh, and of course the common sense thing, there's that famous scene where during the close downs there's this kid surfing in a california ocean and all these cops are converging to arrest him and throw him back and take him to jail and this happened in australia and other places and like fresh air sunlight going out a good mental state all these things were just imperative so there was a lot of mistakes that were so obvious from the start uh, including and in, it caused a lot of pain. So the question, of course, Richard, is again, are we talking about evil or the road to hell with good intentions? <laughs> right. So I'm very open to there being evil in there. And there are certain actors who I find it impossible to think could be honest in this. There are certain like mafia figures, right? Um, who may Tony or may Soprano. not be an American um, in particular, <laughs> um, right? Who I, I so why do we play the evil card? Well, we play the evil, we say that person's evil when we cannot understand their actions. And I think in a lot of instances, we're too early to play the evil card because what it really means is I'm incapable of understanding how this person has a different perspective and how from their perspective, what they're right. doing is good. Obviously that has a limit, right? Obviously some people are just evil, self-interested, prepared to go out and lie, don't care about killing large numbers of people if it's to their own advantage, okay? Um, so there is obviously an evil card on the table here, okay? But it doesn't scare me as much as the good card that's on the table because the vast majority of people involved in this believed they were being virtuous okay They're, so like i'm sure there probably were in in the european witch trials there probably were some evil witches that got burnt there probably were some people who were really trying to put hexes on their neighbors okay but those people aren't as scary as the the psychotic mass of people that are around the burning pyre cheering the whole event on for the vast majority so um, there's good and there's evil, but good scares me more than, than evil. Yeah, it's like in the Soviet Union, people who turned in their neighbors, or in Nazi Germany, people who turned in secret Jews. You know, they thought they were doing something good for the state, and what they were doing is sending people to their deaths. And like you said, it made no sense. You had a problem that arose in China, and the solution was to adopt the same coercive uh, uh, methods that China did to solve their problem, which never got solved, and the whole world adopted it, and uh, things just really broke down, I think. Uh, 
and I'm sure it was different because in the UK, because here in the United States, Richard, when you had 50 states and the governments had to make their calls on all 50 straight states, it was a mess. No governor followed the other governor or followed the CDC and different governors would reopen a month later and another government would do this. So it was pretty chaotic and that's how Americans like it, I suppose. Obviously the, the, the George Floyd death kind of threw everything out because suddenly everybody's like, okay, are we in a crisis? Or are we not in a crisis? Um, it's actually very helpful chaos if you're studying the event now, because the level of global uniformity is kind of terrifying, right? Just how, how an ideology can so take over or be imposed and what the United States does, because in, inside one country, there's like more uh, disparate positions than probably across Europe. Okay. Uh -huh. So, um, what that allows for is a comparison to be made. And it's not an easy comparison, actually, because it's so wild, like the a state could have a, a stay-at-home uh, order or another one could close businesses down or some could do it very harshly for like two weeks yeah. and then be quite liberal over that. But um, if you convert to proxies like economic activity over time and control for factors like tourism and, and so on, you can do a comparison between states and, and say, okay, looking at the severity of how they did the close downs um, as compared to live saved. And what you get is a big mess. You know, um, you don't get any sort of like, which is what you would want to see. Cause it's, it's clear that the close downs had a massive, massive, massive um, negatives. Okay. In terms of uh, negatives that we're going to see for a long time into the future. Yeah. We're seeing them now in terms of the rampant inflation in this country. So for them to be justified, you'd need to balance that out. With like massive positives and that would mean that anywhere that didn't do them you would need to see like dead bodies in the streets you know you need like to, oh, this way they didn't sweden, do it they just, they yeah. didn't sweden, yeah, sweden wiped off the map and florida yeah, and sweden full of did. dead bodies or something that about, you say uh, we know yeah. this was yeah because there's a I, I opened that chapter with a cnn headline of um a death soaring country that didn't close down well, and even Trump, the death yeah, Trump, Trump publicly castigated Sweden too. Yeah, yeah. everybody hated Sweden during those days. But Sweden they are hadn't taken that course. We would have story. no basis of comparison in uh, in Europe now, mm -hmm. which I think is what they wanted, right? I, I don't think they wanted a control group because no, no, which that's going to show them what made sense. Yeah, well, of course they were going to ignore all the African countries because God forbid the West acknowledge that Africa is a place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it had to be European. Uh, freaking ridiculous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you're, yeah, I highly advise the audience to read it, make up your mind, contact Richard. It's a short read, same as with Essence of Anarchism. And, uh, there's so many good statistics, insights, and, uh, as we're seeing anecdotes, historical and otherwise. Vance, as we start getting to the end, do you have any questions or any questions for the audience? Don't see any questions in the audience. Uh, we had Occult Fan earlier. Um, the greater good, <laughs> these benevolent people, got to watch out for them. But uh, no, that's that's all we got, I think. Uh, there was a question as far as whether you had a podcast, but I think Miguel will uh, cover that in the places we can uh, get your material. Yeah, yeah. Well, while we're here, what is your podcast and website? So let's get yeah, that well, out of the way at least. I'll just mention the website is deepstateconsciousness.com. Now, the Measuring the Mandates book, I've made that freely available, right? You can download it from there. If you want to get it from Amazon, it's on there for about $2 or something. Or 
really just want to get this out there and have people look and um yeah see what they agree with me about this and, and come to question the whole thing and deepstateconscious.com has my all the writing on um books on anarchism and sometimes spirituality and consciousness um, obviously um, be left out if that wasn't there um and podcast yeah i do have a podcast it's called the deep state conscious podcast you can get it from the website and on there i'm doing a, a variety of different things so i look at the line between what we might take to be sensible history and where that tips over to conspiracy so i'm doing a, a series on the moon landings at the moment and um how people see them so differently i'm doing what might be a kind of long history of how we got to the lockdowns the shutdowns um starting in the 1890s so i'm going through this rise of imperialism and how we've come to look at the step into an ever more centralized world i'm currently um looking at the kind of revisionist claims of the russian revolution on there the famously associated with anthony sutton and so on and um yeah i will be doing um more stuff in this kind of questions of, of consciousness and and archons and, and so on too so that that's where i'm that's where I'm at. Awesome. Yeah, it's right there. Deep state consciousness should be a good one. And how did historically, I mean, I, I've read how uh, historically people did ancient history, because that's my thing uh, in Greco-Roman times and earlier. And yeah, it was, a, they, they used a lot of magic, but uh, whether it was the Byzantine Empire or the Roman Empire, it was always a pruning and it always had, uh, it was always devastating. It just, it was the the way of the world. But during have you gotten to the spanish flu how did uh, people deal with that one? Oh well i'm being a bit circuitous right so i'm not looking it's not really a medical history it's more of an imperialist history okay mm -hmm. so i'm really it's centered around u.s foreign policy although in season two i've had to jump over and look at the first world war so right. what i'm trying to demonstrate really is where these international institutions arose from like what whereas you have in the second half of the 20th century, the US coming to dominate a large chunk of the world through uh, overthrowing governments and putting compliant dictators in place. And you also have the rise of these globalist institutions like the, the World Health Organization um, uh, and so on. I mean, yeah, the Spanish flu is an interesting one. I suspect, like I strongly suspect you'd find something similar if you looked there, that the, the interventions somewhere along the way uh, brought that about. But sometimes that's the thing. Sometimes the government doesn't do shit. I mean, I remember being a teacher in a public education in the South Side during the whole bird flu thing. And, you know, Obama administration was freaking out. And basically I would go teach and some people wore masks, some didn't. Nobody really paid attention. And you start noticing, did you know during Woodstock, there was a big pandemic. It wasn't as big as this, but it, I mean, it, it was an emergency. I think it killed between 100 and 200,000 Americans, but nobody changed their lifestyle. I mean, people were going to Woodstock in the summer and it was just, uh, the government just had an attitude where, you know, deal with it, take it on the chin. Yeah. And that might be why you didn't see massive spikes in the death rate. Yeah. yeah, still, not yeah, just yeah. Because it wasn't as dangerous. It might be because right, right. it's dangerous. One thing <laughs> is the demographics are much different now because of the baby boomers. There's a huge bubble of older people that is that is now um, was more at risk from the disease. I think that's one that thing that pushed us over. Yeah. And the crappy health of Americans. I mean, when you look at, let's say the Japanese and other nations that are with less health, they, they didn't they barely had any issues i mean you, yeah you do find again our, our government has done a great job at poisoning the population 
<laughs> I do find that correlation that the less healthy the state, the higher the um, mortality rate, unsurprisingly. But what you also find is that people were denied antibiotics during that period. There's a massive really? That's ongoing. Oh, yeah, they're afraid of it. They don't want to really? get antibiotics anymore. Yeah, they're afraid of uh, resistance and bacteria mutating so that we don't have any antibiotics anymore. In which case, take them all away and you're in the same place, right? <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, when I, when I lived in Texas, doctors would give antibiotics like candy. And when I moved to Chicago, doctors were so resistant for those reasons. They, the doctors like you... Just because you've got a little cold, I'm not going to give you antibiotics to your children. It had to be, you basically had to push back or it had to be an emergency. So I thought yeah. it was interesting. Even in the United States, it's a bit regional, this sort of attitude. Yep. All right. Well, I think uh, we got, yeah, we got your podcast. We've got your website. We got everything else. Any last thing you want to tell the audience about how to find your books or your work, Richard? It's all on deep state consciousness. Yeah, mm -hmm. they, they go there. That's the central kind of hope. Centralized. You can uh, even tire. read my poetry. Now, how about that? That's... Oh, there you go. There you go. What kind of poetry is it? Um, I do a fair bit of metaphysical poetry, uh, poems on empire, which is just, uh, that's when I, I just get so annoyed with something that's going on. I just have to splat that one on the page. Metaphysical poetry is all about the uh, materialism, idealism debate and how, just how we can switch between those perspectives. And a fair few poems like reflecting on spirituality. So like uh, poems on Zen, not Zen poems, but poems that look at um, incidents like uh, from the lives of Zen masters or, um, or or like Christian theological positions and just try and take a different perspective. It's like, what if you were standing over there in the room? How would this, how would this appear then? So yeah, just things that I suppose, having been very interested in these things for a long time, uh, I came to uh, reflect on them like, like, oh yeah, well, how can you consider these things differently? Yeah, very cool. Well, check it out, people. I'll, of course, I'll have it on the show notes. I'll have a link after this. And of course, this interview, probably tomorrow, I will release the audio version on all podcast providers. And um, so it will get, uh, yeah, it will get good traction as long as uh, certain archons don't listen to this. But I think we've disguised it well. So, so I really appreciate those of you in the audience. I know we're pretty much starting the holiday weekend and hopefully you guys want to be out getting some sunlight, touching grass, uh, being out there with, uh, well, uh, Artemis. Uh, for me, Artemis is the goddess of the summer. So I am definitely communing with her. So uh, Vance, thank you very much for uh, keeping us company and keeping the Chetico in under control. Yeah, they're great today. And uh, it was great hearing you, Richard. Um, Definitely a more subtle message than people would think if they just heard the word anarchism. You you get good fine points on it. But the term has been weaponized, like conspiracy theorists. And oh, other, yeah. Uh, you know how it is. So we think of the, yeah, the sex pistols or the Keith Ledger when you hear anarchist or something. Riots. Like and yeah, Bart <laughs> Simpson or something like that. <laughs> well, Richard, as always, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on the podcast. And uh, as always, we look forward to the next time we can chat. Thank you very much. It's a real delight to come on here. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. Again, have a good weekend. And as I always say, write your own gospel, live your own myth, and live a life without archons. Take care, everybody.